strong. Ash. Bone. And sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches. The past unburied. The books unsealed. The old celebration returning. Hello, come in. Uh, welcome to my study. Uh, please, uh, have a seat. Uh, have some brandy. Uh, Wilkinson, will you pour? This is my valet, Wilkinson. Besides uh, dispensing good cheer, he assists with the show by pulling books for research and reading any quotations we uh, present. Pleased to meet you. Would you like some also, sir? By all means. Now that the holiday is upon us, we'll be uh, finishing up our look at the darker side of the season. And by that, of course, I mean it's old lore and traditions, uh, not the uh, ugliness of the modern Christmas. We've, we've uh, had our fill of that sort of uh, savagery, uh, eh, Wilkinson? Enough for this year, at least. <sighs> I, I'm not here to complain, of course, and I, well, I hadn't planned on going into this, but... Uh, Certain adventures uh, shared by the two of us this last week, well, they were uh, very instructive in terms of the uh, the gracious old ways colliding with the new, and I'm afraid old Wilkinson here uh, bore the brunt of it. It's really fine. It's just a black eye. Well, uh, hardly a way to repay an act of charity. Um, you see, every Christmas I believe in extending some sort of charity to the poor, so I purchase... Uh, Two dozen fruit baskets, well, uh, actually fruit, nuts, and some exquisite cheeses, and uh, rather large baskets of that. We, we can't even fit them all in the town car, so I have to end up renting one of those grotesque stretch limousines, and we drive downtown to the uh, area full of those uh, squalid tents and cardboard hovels populated by the homeless, and hand them out, or uh, Wilkinson does, uh, Dressed in a handsome St. Nicholas suit I purchased at an auction a number of years back. It's it's really a lovely suit. Uh, happens to have been designed for uh, Macy's Nicholas back in the uh, 1920s with the sort of velvets and ermine not even available nowadays. The uh, tailor who refurbished it suspected the ermine was from Belgium, actually. And impossible to import now. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. Well, I'm a bit off topic, I suppose. Uh, Wilkinson, a little refresher, please. Certainly. Thank you. The point is, there's an astounding lack of gratitude, and it seems to be getting worse year by year. Wilkinson has gotten hesitant to even step out of the vehicle, and the driver doesn't help things, uh, fretting about staying too long in one place and rushing Wilkinson in and out like it's some sort of bank heist. I, I just let the two of them work out the logistics and prefer to stay in the background, not wanting to be out front grandstanding like some great philanthropist. So I was behind a tinted window. I, I didn't really see the whole thing as it unfolded. It was the hat. And some of them were throwing fruit. Yes, the uh, the hat was stolen some uh, altercation when Wilkinson tried to retrieve it. Yes, just... Hearing you talk about the suit, how valuable it is, I felt I couldn't let it oh, go. Good man. And the blood washed right out of the velvet. It was red anyway. 
Yes, no real damage other than a bloody nose and a black eye. The driver may submit a claim for the scratches to the vehicle from the basket thrown, but he said insurance might cover it. We'll chalk it up to uh, holiday charity and uh, an important lesson of some sort, I suppose. The black eye is nearly gone. Live and learn. Uh, you know, pour yourself some brandy. Go ahead. Our, our world is dark and hostile and, and no less so at any given season. But at least the, the old stories, the old customs embrace this in a sense. And that is what we'll be getting into in our show tonight. Something a little different for the holidays, but I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, episode 17, Christmas Ghosts. Well, for the last couple episodes, we've been looking at uh, seasonal traditions, more or less uh, associated with the Krampus. Uh, this time around, we'll be backing up a bit for a wider look at the old dark Christmas from a perspective of uh, English-speaking cultures, and specifically a tradition of dark storytelling at the season. Um, if you'll indulge me, I'll start with a quote from my own book about the Krampus, something about the... Uh, notion of a uh, dark Christmas, and also about the phrase, the old celebration returning, which you hear in the intro every episode. And uh, this being my own writing, I'll read this one myself. Christmas requires the darkness. Every child understands that it's only at midnight the Christmas mystery unfolds. The holiday we've spun from sugar plums and annual TV specials can't exist without those dark edges where imagination blooms. Not by chance, it aligns with the long black night of the solstice and nature's last breath. Skeletal trees or howling winds aren't required. Even those who've grown up with the hum of Christmas air conditioning have felt the uncanny as they await that curious night traveler traversing the skies in archaic costume and prophet's beard. Come late November, the child's world of consensual reality begins to dissolve. Magic elves crouch and spy in suburban homes, still moist pints are suddenly hauled indoors, and parents whisper and sleepwalk through rituals they can't explain. Tradition lies heavy, as if overseen by long-departed ancestors. Now, in English-speaking lands, we uh, have our own tales of the uh, ghostly wild hunt, which we discussed last episode. And uh, this idea of seasonal apparitions uh, generated many a dark tale in our own language. Uh, the longer nights of the dying year are perfect for fireside retellings of what Christopher Marlowe and his contemporaries called Winter Tales, as in his 1595 play, The Jew of Malta. Now I remember those old woman's words, who in my wealth would tell me winter's tales and speak of spirits and ghosts that glide by night. A couple decades earlier, uh, Prince uh, Maximilius of uh, Shakespeare's A Winter's Tale defines the genre. A sad tale's best for winter. I have one of sprites and goblins. 
It was left to the uh, Victorians to revive the holiday horror story as a genuine tradition. In 1891, uh, British traveler and writer and humorist uh, Jerome K. Jerome introduced an, an anthology of Christmas ghost stories explaining Whenever five or six English-speaking people meet round a fire on Christmas Eve, they start telling each other ghost stories. Nothing satisfies us on Christmas Eve but to hear each other tell authentic anecdotes about specters. Henry James even employs uh, the uh, then-common telling of holiday ghost stories as a framing device for his 1889 gothic novella, Turn of the Screw. Uh, the basis for an excellent uh, 1961 film, The Innocence, which uh, you're hearing a bit of the uh, music from. But it is uh, Charles Dickens' uh, Christmas Carol that most famously embodies this uh, tradition. And most Americans will be surprised that Dickens' tale of the chain-dragging and shrouded specters is but one of his efforts in the field. Uh, published in 1837, the Pickwick Papers also notably contains the story of the goblins who stole a sexton, in which a uh, mean-spirited gravedigger is dragged underground on Christmas Eve by a goblin. Much like uh, Ebenezer Scrooge, his adventures leave him a changed man. Uh, also set during the holidays is Dickens' uh, 1848 story, The Haunted Man and the Ghost's Bargain, A Fancy for Christmas Time, and uh, 1851's The Last Words of the Old Year. Others of his many ghost stories, while not explicitly set during the holidays, were issued in collections intended to be read at uh, Christmas. Though no longer occupying the central place it once did, the tradition of the holiday spook story has been supported into the 21st century by the uh, British radio and television. In uh, 1971, BBC One inaugurated an annual tradition with the series A Ghost Story for Christmas. Running through 1978, it was resurrected by BBC Four and has run on and off since, heavily featuring the stories of Montague Rhodes James, provost of kings, scholar, antiquary, and writer of ghost stories. Of particular interest here might be the offering of uh, Christmas 2000, uh, stories told by Christopher Lee, uh, all available on YouTube, by the way. Well, uh, we don't have Christopher Lee with us, but we do have a ghost story by uh, M.R. James, read by uh, Peter Yearsley. As it's the holiday and we've been talking about ghost stories, I thought something a little different might be nice uh, to give you something uh, special to curl up with on Christmas Eve. Uh, I'll be saying my uh, farewell now before we begin this story, but uh, before I close, I'd like to thank Brandy Murray, Nicolette Rivette, uh, Aaron Bobick, uh, Wolfie Thorns, and Fomas for their uh, recent Patreon donations, and to thank all our listeners for being with us through 2018. Happy holidays to you all, and uh, we'll see you in 2019. And uh, now, to the ghosts. Ghost Stories of an Antiquary, Volume 1, by M. R. James. Lost Hearts. It was, as far as I can ascertain, in September of the year 1811 that a post-chaise drew up before the door of Azelby Hall in the heart of Lincolnshire. 
The little boy, who was the only passenger in the chaise, and who jumped out as soon as it had stopped, looked about him with the keenest curiosity during the short interval that elapsed between the ringing of the bell and the opening of the hall door. He saw a tall, square, red-brick house, built in the reign of Anne. A stone-pillared porch had been added in the purer classical style of 1790. The windows of the house were many, tall and narrow, with small panes and thick white woodwork. A pediment pierced with a round window crowned the front. There were wings to the right and left, connected by curious glazed galleries supported by colonnades with the central block. These wings plainly contained the stables and offices of the house. Each was surmounted by an ornamental cupola with a gilded vane. An evening light shone on the building, making the window panes glow like so many fires. Away from the hall in front stretched a flat park, studded with oaks and fringed with firs, which stood out against the sky. The clock in the church tower, buried in trees on the edge of the park, only its golden weathercock catching the light, was striking six, and the sound came gently beating down the wind. It was altogether a pleasant impression, though tinged with the sort of melancholy appropriate to an evening in early autumn that was conveyed to the mind of the boy who was standing in the porch waiting for the door to open to him. The post-chaise had brought him from Warwickshire, where some six months before he had been left an orphan. Now, owing to the generous offer of his elderly cousin, Mr. Abney, he had come to live at Aswerby. The offer was unexpected, because all who knew anything of Mr. Abney looked upon him as a somewhat austere recluse, into whose steady-going household the advent of a small boy would import a new and, it seemed, incongruous element. The truth is that very little was known of Mr. Abney's pursuits or temper. The professor of Greek at Cambridge had been heard to say that no one knew more of the religious beliefs of the later pagans than did the owner of Azubi. Certainly his library contained all the then available books bearing on the mysteries, the Orphic poems, the worship of Mithras, and the Neoplatonists. In the marble-paved hall stood a fine group of Mithras slaying a bull, which had been imported from the Levant at great expense by the owner. He had contributed a description of it to the gentleman's magazine, and he had written a remarkable series of articles in the Critical Museum on the superstitions of the Romans of the Lower Empire. He was looked upon, in fine, as a man wrapped up in his books, and it was a matter of great surprise among his neighbours that he should ever have heard of his orphan cousin, Stephen Elliot, much more than he should have volunteered to make him an inmate of Azerby Hall. Whatever may have been expected by his neighbours, it is certain that Mr. Abney, the tall, the thin, the austere, seemed inclined to give his young cousin a kindly reception. The moment the front door was opened, he darted out of his study, rubbing his hands with delight. How are you, my boy? How are you? 
How old are you? said he. That is, you're not too much tired, I hope, by your journey to eat your supper. No, thank you, sir, said Master Elliot. I am pretty well. That's a good lad, said Mr. Abney. And how old are you, my boy? It seemed a little odd that he should have asked the question twice in the first two minutes of their acquaintance. I'm twelve years old next birthday, sir, said Stephen. And when is your birthday, my dear boy? Eleventh of September, eh? That's well, that's very well. Nearly a year hence, isn't it? I like, <laughs> I like to get these things down in my book. Sure it's twelve? Mm, certain? Yes, quite sure, sir. Well, well. Um, take him to Mrs. Bunch's room, Parks, and let him have his tea, supper, whatever it is. Yes, sir, answered the staid Mr. Parks, and conducted Stephen to the lower regions. Mrs. Bunch was the most comfortable and human person whom Stephen had as yet met at Azerby. She made him completely at home. They were great friends in a quarter of an hour, and great friends they remained. Mrs. Bunch had been born in the neighbourhood some fifty-five years before the date of Stephen's arrival, and her residence at the hall was of twenty years' standing. Consequently, if anyone knew the ins and outs of the house and the district, Mrs. Bunch knew them, and she was by no means disinclined to communicate her information. Certainly, there were plenty of things about the hall and the hall gardens which Stephen, who was of an adventurous and inquiring turn, was anxious to have explained to him. Who built the temple at the end of the laurel walk? Who was the old man whose picture hung on the staircase, sitting at a table with a skull under his hand? These and many similar points were cleared up by the resources of Mrs. Bunch's powerful intellect. There were others, however, of which the explanations furnished were less satisfactory. One November evening, Stephen was sitting by the fire in the housekeeper's room, reflecting on his surroundings. "'Is Mr. Abney a good man, and will he go to heaven?' he suddenly asked, with the peculiar confidence which children possess in the ability of their elders to settle these questions, the decision of which is believed to be reserved for other tribunals. "'Good bless the child,' said Mrs. Bunch. Master's as kind a soul as ever I see. Didn't I never tell you of the little boy as he took in out of the street, as you may say, this seven years back, and the little girl, two years after I first come here? No, do tell me all about them, Mrs. Bunch. Now, this minute. Well, said Mrs. Bunch, the little girl I don't seem to recollect so much about. I know Master brought her back with him from his walk one day, and give orders to Mrs. Ellis, as, as was housekeeper then, as she should be took every care with. And the poor child hadn't no one belonging to her. She told me so, her own self, and here she lived with us a matter of three weeks, it might be, and then, whether she was something of a gypsy in her blood or what not, but one morning she, out of her bed, afore any of us had opened an eye, and neither track nor yet trace of her have I set eyes on since. Master was wonderful put about, and had all the ponds dragged, but it's my belief she was had away by them gypsies, for there was singing around the house for as much as an hour the nights she went. 
and Parks, he declares he heard them a calling in the woods all that afternoon. Dear, dear, a hod child she was, so silent in her ways and all, but I was wonderful taken up with her, so domesticated she was, surprising. And what about the little boy? said Stephen. Ah, that poor boy, sighed Mrs. Bunch. He were a foreigner, Jeveny he called himself, and he come a-tweaking his hurdy-gurdy round and about the drive one winter day, and Master had him in that minute, and asked all about where he came from, and how old he was, and how he made his way, and where was his relatives, and all as kind as heart could wish. But it went the same way with him. They're a unruly lot, them foreign nations, I do suppose, and he was off one fine morning, just the same as the girl. Why he went and what he done was our question for as much as a year after, for he never took his hurdy-gurdy, and there it lays on the shelf. The remainder of the evening was spent by Stephen in miscellaneous cross-examination of Mrs. Bunch, and in efforts to extract a tune from the hurdy-gurdy. That night he had a curious dream. At the end of the passage, at the top of the house, in which his bedroom was situated, there was an old disused bathroom. It was kept locked, but the upper half of the door was glazed, and since the muslin curtains which used to hang there had long been gone, you could look in and see the lead-lined bath affixed to the wall on the right hand, with its head towards the window. On the night of which I am speaking, Stephen Elliot found himself, as he thought, looking through the glazed door. The moon was shining through the window, and he was glazing at a figure which lay in the bath. His description of what he saw reminds me of what I once beheld myself in the famous vaults of St. Michan's Church in Dublin, which possesses the horrid property of preserving corpses from decay for centuries. A figure inexpressibly thin and pathetic, of a dusty leaden colour, enveloped in a shroud-like garment, the thin lips crooked into a faint and dreadful smile, the hands pressed tightly over the region of the heart. As he looked upon it, a distant, almost inaudible moan seemed to issue from its lips, and the arms began to stir. The terror of the sight forced Stephen backwards, and he awoke to the fact that he was indeed standing on the cold boarded floor of the passage, in the full light of the moon. With a courage which I do not think can be common among boys of his age, he went to the door of the bathroom to ascertain if the figure of his dreams were really there. It was not, and he went back to bed. Mrs. Bunch was much impressed next morning by his story, and went so far as to replace the muslin curtain over the glazed door of the bathroom. Mr. Abney, moreover, to whom he confided his experiences at breakfast, was greatly interested, and made notes of the matter in what he called his book. The spring equinox was approaching, as Mr. Abney frequently reminded his cousin, adding that this had been always considered by the ancients to be a critical time for the young, that Stephen would do well to take care of himself, and to shut his bedroom window at night, and that Kensorinus had some valuable remarks on the subject. 
Two incidents that occurred about this time made an impression upon Stephen's mind. The first was after an unusually uneasy and oppressed night that he had passed, though he could not recall any particular dream that he had had. The following evening, Mrs. Bunch was occupying herself in mending his nightgown. Gracious me, Master Stephen, she broke forth rather irritably. How do you manage to tear your nightdress all to flinders this way? Look here, sir. What trouble you do give to poor servants that have to darn and mend after you? There was, indeed, a most destructive and apparently wanton series of slits or scorings in the garment, which would undoubtedly require a skilful needle to make good. They were confined to the left side of the chest, long, parallel slits about six inches in length, some of them not quite piercing the texture of the linen. Stephen could only express his entire ignorance of their origin. He was sure they were not there the night before. But, he said, Mrs. Bunch, they're just the same as the scratches on the outside of my bedroom door, and I'm sure I never had anything to do with making them. Mrs. Bunch gazed at him open-mouthed, then snatched up a candle departed hastily from the room, and was heard making her way upstairs. In a few minutes she came down. Well, she said, Master Stephen, it's a funny thing to me how them marks and scratches can have come there. Too high up for any cat or dog to have made them, much less a rat. For all the world, like a Chinaman's fingernails, as my uncle in the tea trade used to tell us of when we was girls together. I wouldn't say nothing to Master, not if I was you, Master Stephen, my dear. And just turn the key of the door when you go up to your bed. I always do, Mrs. Bunch, as soon as I've said my prayers. Ah, oh, that's a good child. Always say your prayers, and then no one can't hurt you. Herewith, Mrs. Bunch addressed herself to mending the injured nightgown, with intervals of meditation, until bedtime. This was on a Friday night in March. 1812. On the following evening, the usual duet of Stephen and Mrs. Bunch was augmented by the sudden arrival of Mr. Parks, the butler, who as a rule kept himself rather to himself in his own pantry. He did not see that Stephen was there. He was moreover flustered and less slow of speech than was his wont. Master may get up his own wine if he likes of an evening, was his first remark. Either I do it in the daytime or not at all, Mrs. Bunch. I don't know what it may be. Very like it's the rats or the wind got into the cellars, but I'm not so young as I was, and I can't go through with it as I have done. Well, Mr. Parks, you know it is a surprising place for the rats, is the hole. I'm not denying that, Mrs. Bunch. And to be sure, many a time I've heard the tale from the men in the shipyards about the rat that could speak. I never laid no confidence in that before. Tonight, if I'd demeaned myself to lay my ear on the door of the further bin, I could pretty much have heard what they were saying. Oh, there, Mr. Park, I've no patience with your fancies. Rats talking in the wine cellar, indeed. Well, Mrs. Bunch, I've no wish to argue with you. All I say is, if you choose to go to the far bin and lay your ear to the door, you may prove my words this minute. What nonsense you do talk, Mr. Parks. Not fit for children to listen to. Why, you'll be frightening Master Stephen there out of his wits. What? Master Stephen? said Parks, 
awaking to the consciousness of the boy's presence. Master Stephen knows well enough when I'm playing a joke with you, Mrs. Bunch. In fact, Master Stephen knew much too well to suppose that Mr. Parks had in the first instance intended a joke. He was interested, not altogether pleasantly, in the situation, but all his questions were unsuccessful in inducing the butler to give any more detailed account of his experiences in the wine cellar. We have now arrived at March the 24th, 1812. It was a day of curious experiences for Stephen. A windy, noisy day, which filled the house and the gardens with a restless impression. As Stephen stood by the fence of the grounds and looked out into the park, he felt as if an endless procession of unseen people were sweeping past him on the wind, borne on resistlessly and aimlessly, vainly striving to stop themselves, to catch at something that might arrest their flight and bring them once again into contact with the living world of which they had formed a part. After luncheon that day, Mr. Abney said, Stephen, my boy, do you think you could manage to come to me tonight, as late as eleven o'clock in my study? I shall be busy until that time, and I wish to show you something connected with your future life, which it is most important that you should know. You are not to mention this matter to Mrs. Bunch, nor to anyone else in the house, and you had better go to your room at the usual time. Here was a new excitement added to life. Stephen eagerly grasped at the opportunity of sitting up till eleven o'clock. He looked in at the library door on his way upstairs that evening, and saw a brazier, which he had often noticed in the corner of the room, moved out before the fire. An old silver-gilt cup stood on the table, filled with red wine, and some written sheets of paper lay near it. Mr. Abney was sprinkling some incense on the brazier from a round silver box as Stephen passed, but did not seem to notice his step. The wind had fallen, and there was a still night and a full moon. At about ten o'clock, Stephen was standing at the open window of his bedroom, looking out over the country. Still as the night was, the mysterious population of the distant moonlit woods was not yet lulled to rest. From time to time, strange cries, as of lost and despairing wanderers, sounded from across the mere. They might be the notes of owls or water birds, yet they did not quite resemble either sound. Were they not coming nearer? Now they sounded from the nearer side of the water, and in a few moments they seemed to be floating about among the shrubberies. Then they ceased. But just as Stephen was thinking of shutting the window and resuming his reading of Robinson Crusoe, he caught sight of two figures standing on the gravelled terrace that ran along the garden side of the hall, the figures of a boy and girl, as it seemed. They stood side by side, looking up at the windows. Something in the form of the girl recalled irresistibly his dream of the figure in the bath. The boy inspired him with more acute fear. Whilst the girl stood still, half smiling, with her hands clasped over her heart, the boy, a thin shape, with black hair and ragged clothing, raised his arms in the air with an appearance of menace 
and of unappeasable hunger and longing. The moon shone upon his almost transparent hands, and Stephen saw that the nails were fearfully long, and that the light shone through them. As he stood with his arms thus raised, he disclosed a terrifying spectacle. On the left side of his chest there opened a black and gaping rent, and there fell upon Stephen's brain, rather than upon his ear, the impression of one of those hungry and desolate cries that he had heard resounding over the woods of Azobe all that evening. In another moment this dreadful pair had moved swiftly and noiselessly over the dry gravel, and he saw them no more. Inexpressibly frightened as he was, he determined to take his candle and go down to Mr. Abney's study, for the hour appointed for their meeting was near at hand. The study, or library, opened out of the front hall on one side, and Stephen, urged on by his terrors, did not take long in getting there. To effect an entrance was not so easy. It was not locked, he felt sure, for the key was on the outside of the door, as usual. His repeated knocks produced no answer. Mr. Abney was engaged. He was speaking. What? Why did he try to cry out? And why was the cry choked in his throat? Had he, too, seen the mysterious children? But now everything was quiet, and the door yielded to Stephen's terrified and frantic pushing. On the table in Mr. Abney's study, certain papers were found which explained the situation to Stephen Elliot when he was of an age to understand them. The most important sentences were as follows. It was a belief very strongly and generally held by the ancients, of whose wisdom in these matters I have had such experience as induces me to place confidence in their assertions, that by enacting certain processes which to us moderns have something of a barbaric complexion, a very remarkable enlightenment of the spiritual faculties in man may be attained. That, for example, by absorbing the personalities of a certain number of his fellow creatures, an individual may gain a complete ascendancy over those orders of spiritual beings which control the elemental forces of our universe. It is recorded of Simon Magus that he was able to fly in the air, to become invisible, or to assume any form he pleased, by the agency of the soul of a boy whom, to use the libelous phrase employed by the author of the Clementine Recognitions, he had murdered. I find it set down, moreover, with considerable detail in the writings of Hermes Trismegistus, that similar happy results may be produced by the absorption of the hearts of not less than three human beings below the age of twenty-one years. To the testing of the truth of this recipe I have devoted the greater part of the last twenty years, selecting as the corpora villia of my experiment such persons as could conveniently be removed without occasioning a sensible gap in society. The first step I effected by the removal of one Phoebe Stanley, a girl of gypsy extraction, on March the 22nd, 1792, the second by the removal of a wandering Italian lad named Giovanni Paoli on the night of March the 23rd, 1805, the final victim, to employ a word repugnant in the highest degree to my feelings, 
must be my cousin Stephen Elliot. His day must be this March 24th, 1812. The best means of effecting the required absorption is to remove the heart from the living subject, to reduce it to ashes, and to mingle them with about a pint of some red wine, preferably port. The remains of the first two subjects, at least, it will be well to conceal. A disused bathroom or wine cellar will be found convenient for such a purpose. Some annoyance may be experienced from the psychic portion of the subjects, which popular language dignifies with the name of ghosts, but the man of philosophic temperament, to whom alone the experiment is appropriate, will be little prone to attach importance to the feeble efforts of these beings to wreak their vengeance on him. I contemplate with the liveliest satisfaction the enlarged and emancipated existence which the experiment, if successful, will confer on me, not only placing me beyond the reach of human justice, so-called, but eliminating, to a great extent, the prospect of death itself. Mr. Abney was found in his chair, his head thrown back, his face stamped with an expression of rage, fright, and mortal pain. In his left side was a terrible lacerated wound exposing the heart. There was no blood on his hands, and a long knife that lay on the table was perfectly clean. A savage wildcat might have inflicted the injuries. The window of the study was open, and it was the opinion of the coroner that Mr. Abney had met his death by the agency of some wild creature. But Stephen Elliot's study of the papers I have quoted led him to a very different conclusion. <laughs>